Lord, you are doing a great work so many places. We thank you, Lord, for the work you're doing in China. Despite the decades of, uh, Lord, those who have tried to stamp out your truth and your word, that it continues to go forth explosively. And uh, even to what I saw in Cambodia last year and how a nation that had Christianity almost completely eradicated as churches are uh, propping up everywhere there. Evangelism is booming, and the Lord is such an encouragement to see your work there. And thank you, Lord, for this church and your saints here who are part of that work, and, and the many other churches in America and around the world who are, um, Lord, have a heart for the lost. I pray, Lord, you would stir that within us, even in these weeks as we go through this series on the distinctives of, of our church, of your church. And We pray, Lord, now as we look to your word, that you would open our eyes to the wonderful truths within your law, and that we would be moved by your spirit to respond in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Kempens mentioned last week, uh, we're taking a break from Mark this summer to dive into the eight distinctives of Calvary Bible Church. And these distinctives are based on what he opened up with last week, the nature and the purpose of the church. And so today we're going to look at the first of those distinctives. If you're picking up those, uh, those little bookmarks, the eight distinctives are on there. Uh, anyone have a bookmark? Hold it up. I want to see you. Just a couple of you. Hannah, I know you had one. Where's your bookmark? Okay. I think they're outside in the foyer, right? You can pick them up there. They have the eight distinctives on there. The first one is a Bible-centered church. And I mean, Bible's our middle name, right? So certainly we should be a bible Center Church. Uh, now, this distinctive is not just for CBC. It's not just for those churches with Bible in their middle name. It is also for a distinctive for the Universal Church. It's a distinctive and should be for every true church, every true church or group that is following Jesus Christ. Isn't that what Paul said in 1 Timothy 3.15 when he described the church as the pillar and support of the truth? By its very nature, the church is to be Bible-centered. Jesus himself said in the high priestly prayer, your word is truth. But this word truth has become particularly confused in our day, in our postmodern culture. Remember, it was less than 24 hours after Jesus made that statement, your word is truth. It is less than 24 hours that he stood before a man named Pilate. And after telling Pilate that he testified to the truth, Pilate cynically responded with this question, really a statement. What is truth? Is there such a thing? And in asking that question, Pilate became what we could say the poster boy for the postmodern culture of today, which questions the existence of such a thing as truth. It's a culture that asserts that there is no absolute truth, which ironically is an absolute truth claim. Postmodernism says there's no absolute standard, there's no objective truth, there's, especially when it comes to religion or to spirituality, because humans are subjective. And so then, therefore, the knowledge or existence of absolute truth is impossible, our culture would say. In his book, The Truth War, John MacArthur said the central characteristic of postmodernism is this, the rejection of every expression of certainty. 
the rejection of every expression of certainty. And in fact, postmodernists would say it is arrogant to even suggest that one could come to know such a thing as truth. Their slogan is, that may be true for you, but not for me. I have my truth. Now, I understand this. I understand Calvary Bible Church stands upon the Word of God, stands upon the fact that the Word of God contains absolute truth from God. I I understand that. It's been that way for 65 plus years now. I know we are here and we affirm that we believe the Bible is the Word of God. But brothers and sisters, we would be foolish to think that we are immune to the influences of the culture around us. We would be foolish to think that our children are not influenced by the culture around us. Truth is so important. We would be foolish to think that the postmodernist philosophy around us is not impacting us and especially our next generation. And in fact, postmodernism has already found its way into the church. You know, it's very common to hear the question asked in various Bible studies or, or church gatherings. What does this passage mean to you? Well, that's a postmodernist question, really. Because you see, it's irrelevant what the passage means to me until I understand what the passage means. What did the original author intend for his original audience to understand? That's where I need to begin. I can't talk about what it means to me until I understood what it meant. And that's the role and responsibility of anyone teaching from the Word of God. What did it mean? Then we can talk about how does it apply to us. But see, postmodernists don't want to start there. Because, you know, understanding or, or knowing absolute truth, now that's not attainable. So as you read this text, how does it affect you? How does it uh, influence you? Karl Barth said this. He said, the Bible contains the word of God. Is that a true statement? No, the Bible is the word of God. It's a big difference. He also said the Bible becomes the word of God as it impacts you. That's a postmodernist way of thinking. No, the Bible is the Word of God. It is the Spirit of God working through the Word of God that impacts you. The truth is the truth. The problem is far worse than that simple Bible study question, what does the passage mean to me, in regards to how postmodernism has infiltrated the church. There are many aspects that I have seen and experienced in the last few decades and what I've seen is the impact of postmodernism and this, this thinking within the church. One of them is in what has been called the emergent church movement. The emergent church has emerged, no pun intended, with this postmodern thinking. And while many in the emerging church would not deny the, absolute, the existence of absolute truth, they would strongly embrace the idea, though, that, that truth is unclear, that it's hazy, that it is difficult to attain. Perhaps nearly impossible to know the truth with any degree of certainty. Some would even say this of the gospel. Brian McLaren, who is a prominent leader within the emergent church, says this. I don't think we've got the gospel right yet. I don't think the liberals have it right, but I don't think we have it right either. Are you kidding me? That's an astounding statement. It's a dangerous statement. It's a damning statement statement we don't have the gospel right didn't jesus say this you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free 
But if we don't know the truth of the gospel, then there is no hope. There is no salvation. There is no escaping the eternal torment of hell because we would not know what to do about it. Now, not everyone in the emergent movement would would say this, but, but because of the belief that one can't be sure of the truth, many will minimize the importance of doctrine or even ignore it altogether. And they justify this by saying we can't take a stand on scriptural truth because, after all, how can one really know or be sure of the truth, that it can be truly known? So I'm not going to make an issue of it. It only creates disunity and division anyway. In fact, I meet with several guys uh, over the... The last several years, I meet with guys who are interested in doing church plants in the area. They find out about Calvary, and they, they ask if we could participate. And so I'll meet with these guys, and, and many of them sort of, again, younger guys that have been influenced by this type of thinking. And the first question that I ask them is, so tell me, what is the gospel? Um, and we'll talk about that, because if anything, I want to make sure in our conversation we've had that discussion, and that this guy's going out, and at least he's proclaiming the gospel. And then the second thing I ask him is this. So do you have a doctrinal statement? You would be shocked how many times guys look at me with a blank stare, like, like I said some foreign word they'd never heard before. A doctrinal statement? What, what, what is that? And as I explain it, they go, well, no, I don't really want to make a stand because that might turn people away. And it's scary to me, but it's that mentality that truth isn't really the issue here, it's community, it's fellowship, it's being together, it's, it's, it's my truth and as I live it out, as I understand the word of God. And such a view, again, it simply amazes me because did not Paul say, again, 1 Timothy 3.15, that the church exists to be the pillar and support of whatever ideas out there in the culture. You just need to adapt. By its very definition... By its very calling, at its very foundation, the church is where truth is to be found. The church is where truth is to be understood. The church is where truth is to be proclaimed. The church is where truth is to be lived out. The church is to be Bible-centered by its very nature and existence. And there are many other churches that may not have fallen into the emergent church movement, but they too have been affected in some way by post Modernism on this, and then the focus on the, uh, on truth and, and the personal truth. That is what makes me happy over what is right. One such example would be what is known as hypergrace theology. Hypergrace theology has taken the wonderful, matchless grace of God and, and distorted it, and it exaggerated it to a point that they dismiss the pursuit of holiness or the mortification of sin or the the need for repentance, that these are not only de-emphasized, they're minimized and in some cases by some even ignored. This doctrine has embraced this postmodernist idea that elevates feeling above thinking what is right, feeling what is right rather than thinking and doing what is right. They've forgotten Philippians 2.12, which says, work out your salvation for God is at work. It's a both end. Proposition. It certainly is the grace of God as he works through, that grace works through us as we are obedient to his word and faith. It's the same mindset that has come into play. The postmodernist influence has also brought about what is called the contemplative prayer movement. I don't know if you've heard of that, but in this movement, it encourages experiencing God through prayer, but it's more by silent listening. 
Not by praying yourself, not by being guided in prayer through the word. It's sort of a meditative state waiting to receive a message from God. And see, we've been given a message from God already. As a result, uh, this sort of prayer is distorted prayer into a passive meditation, which is more like Eastern mysticism, which again elevates feeling what is right over thinking and doing what is right. It's the same mindset. This postmodernist thinking has infiltrated the church to such an extent that many churches now embrace and they not only tolerate the modern sexual revolution, they embrace it and even advocate it. Again, the postmodernist approach is not to live by what is true, but to live by what makes one happy. What makes one feel good. Again, the feeling what is right is of greater importance than thinking what is right. So, brothers and sisters, we we must be alert. We, We have to have our eyes open to this. We can't hide our head in the sand on this one. We have to give attention, serious attention to anything that might threaten us from maintaining our commitment to the truth. We must identify and be wary of any influence that might might distract or hinder us from the truth. And again, let me emphasize, especially for our youth. Alex, you're hearing me, right? I know he appreciates this and understands it. We can't be naive to the fact that our enemy would love to blunt our impact in this world, that he'd love for us to water down sound doctrine, that he'd love for us to be uncertain of the truth, to be confused about the truth. He would love for us to follow the path of what feels right rather than what is right. He would want us to affirm our own truth rather than the truth. And in fact, of all the weapons that Satan employs, do you know what his primary weapon is? You know what his main emphasis is, his primary strategy? He revealed it at the very beginning, the first words out of his mouth as recorded in Scripture. Do you remember what he said? He was speaking to a young lady named Eve. And what did he tell her? First words out of his mouth. Did God really say? What is he doing there? He's trying to pervert, distort, confuse the truth, undermine the truth. That has been a strategy from the very beginning, and it continues to be all through history. He wants to undermine the word of God. He wants to cast doubt into the veracity of his word. He wants us to question God's word. He wants us to question, well, what is truth? Is there such a thing? Can we really know it? How can we be sure that we have it? And ever since that day in the garden, Satan's main focus has been to corrupt, to distort, to bring doubt, to cast dispersion to undermine the truth. And that's why we see Satan so active in promoting false doctrine. 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul says this, In latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. He said in 2 Corinthians 11.13 that false teachers are deceitful workers disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. You know, most people think Satan spends most of his time tempting to sin. Tempting people to sin. Infiltrating our culture in that way. Certainly he does that. Temptation is one of his approaches, but it is not his main one. You see, he he knows we are sinners by birth. He knows that we are rebels at heart. He doesn't have to work too hard to get us 
to go down a path of sin. Honestly, I don't think he worries so much about whether people sin or not. It's whether they come to the truth or not. That's his greater concern. You see, he he worries about whether people will find out that they are sinners and in need of forgiveness and how to obtain that forgiveness. And if he loses a person, if a person comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not like he says, oh, well, I lost that one. I'm going to move on. Because you see, if Satan cannot keep us from heaven, he will do everything he can to keep us from holiness. And again, the best way to do that is to undermine the truth, to confuse the truth, so that we don't really know what God has given us as far as instruction is concerned. He clouds it. He confuses it. I mean, why do you think postmodernism is thriving in our culture? How in the world did it find its way into the church? Because Satan and his minions have worked very hard to make that happen. But brothers and sisters, we're not helpless. We're not helpless. You know, it's very interesting that quote I gave about Christ when he said in John 17, your word is truth. You know what he said right before that? He was praying for the disciples. He was praying for the disciples that they would be protected from the evil one. And then right after that, he says this, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. How is it that we are protected from the attacks of Satan? How is it that we can withstand the postmodern thinking of our culture? By the truth. And then he says, Jesus tells us very explicitly, your word is where that is found. Your word is truth. Jesus knew the disciples would be protected, protected by the evil one if they knew and relied upon and understood the truth of God's word. Did not Jesus himself show us that example in Matthew chapter 4 when he was confronted with temptation? What did he say over and over in response to Satan's temptations? It is written. It is written. It is written. He was showing us there. That the truth is what we have in this battle. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 6, it says that we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, saints, we must realize this, that the danger is not just from Satan. It's not just from our postmodern culture. It's not just from the false teachers or the misguided preachers who have been influenced by that culture. We must also realize that the problem can come from within as well. For you see, the danger arises not just from those who teach, but from those who listen. And we find this in our text this morning in 2 Timothy. So please turn there with me, Second Timothy, and we'll look at chapter 4 at first. Alex read from this text earlier. I know this is a familiar passage to, to many of us here. I want us to revisit this, look at it in light of the issues and concerns that are going on in our culture today. Again, as you may know, Second Timothy was Paul's last letter. His last letter to his protege, Timothy, and he wrote it knowing his death was coming soon and that false teachers were increasing in number. And because of that, we see an earnestness here in this letter. We see a a compelling tone in this letter from Paul to Timothy. We see him tell Timothy several times, there's a focus in this letter on the truth, and he's telling Timothy to hold on to the truth, to live by the truth, to defend the truth, to proclaim the truth, and to teach it, to protect it. In chapter 3, 
After warning Timothy about false teachers that are going to rise up and and they would not rely on the truth, he tells Timothy, "But, but you need to rely on the scriptures. And then he says this in 2 Timothy 4, 1. Look there with me. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of, to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Interesting here again, notice how Paul equates the word of God to the truth. But as he comes to the end of his letter, he imparts the most critical instruction to Timothy and by extension to the church. And we know it is the most critical one because notice how serious his charge is. What does he say there? I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. By the way, he's coming to judge. You must, Timothy, you must preach the word. You must proclaim the truth. And after he tells Timothy to preach the word, he then tells Timothy when, how, and why. Notice here he says in verse 2, when to do it, in season and out of season, right? That means all the time, whether it's convenient or not, whether it's received or not, whether it's uh, uh, conducive to or accepted by our postmodern culture or not. And then Paul tells him how to preach the word. He says, reprove, rebuke, exhort. That word reprove means, has this idea of identifying, instructing as to what scripture says Sin is, and what to do about it. Rebuke has the idea of then calling the hearers to respond in repentance if they are caught up in that sin. And then exhort is uh, comes from the word parakaleo. It means to come alongside. It's this idea of, it can be translated as exhort or encourage, but it's this idea of coming alongside someone to help. Remember the Holy Spirit is referred to as the paraclete, the helper. And sometimes the help we need is a kick in the pants. And other times the help we need is an encouraging word. Right? So that's this idea. It's translated here, exhort. But I would say better, it's be coming alongside. Those who preach the word, teach the word, need to come alongside and help those being instructed to fulfill what the scripture says. Application, help them apply it. And then notice here, after saying when to preach and how to preach, Paul says why. Notice verse 3, that, that first word there, for, that's telling us why. Why preach the word, Timothy? Because the time will come, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Saints, why must the word be preached? What does Paul tell us here? Because the time will come when those who are listening don't want to hear it anymore. They will gather around themselves teachers. Gather as this idea of abundantly accumulate teachers who will tell them what they want to hear, who will lead them away from the truth, just like what is happening today. And the reason, the reason they will accumulate or gather these many teachers, and again, notice here the focus in verses 3 and 4 is on the listener, not the preacher. You see that word ear mentioned here? Preachers don't speak with their ears. Maybe we wish some of them would, but but those with the ears here are the listeners. 
The reason these listeners will gather teachers to themselves is because they'll have an itching ear. Now, now what does that mean? It was a figurative expression. It, it means to be told something that brings pleasant feelings, like when you scratch an itch. You know that first feeling you get when you scratch the itch? It's like, ah, oh, that's better. That's what he's talking about here. It's like the ear having an itch scratch. It's like when you hear something, ah, oh, I like that. I like that. Tell me more. Tell me more. It makes me feel good. As I mentioned in, earlier, postmodernism caters to this very thing. No absolute truth. What feels right is more important than what is right. It's all relative. You have your truth. I have my truth. Notice Paul here, he's describing that. Those who want to hear things that accord to their own desires, things that they want to hear, things that make them feel good. Uh, John MacArthur affirmed this when he said, this generation won't just sit in the pew while someone up front preaches at them. They're products of a media-driven generation and they need a church experience that will satisfy them on their own terms by giving them what they want. He's right. Now, at this point, we should be asking ourselves this question. We always should be asking this question when we approach the Word of God, whether we're reading it, whether we're hearing it, whether we're studying it. How does it apply to us? Well, to answer that question, we first must answer the question, who is, who are the they? Help me, English scholars. Who is the they? Who are the they? Whatever. When it says they here, they will not endure, wanting their ears tickled. They will accumulate their own desires. To whom, and I know I got that right grammatically, to whom is Paul referring to? Well, given the near context, the they here is referring to those to whom Timothy is preaching to. And who is that? Well, if we know the background to this letter, the background of Timothy's ministry at this time, he is pastoring in the church at the church of Ephesus. What do we know about that place? Bunch of ignorant bums that don't know the word of God? Not at all. Far from it. In fact, if you remember, Ephesus was where Paul spent, at least as we see in Acts, the most time of any place in his ministry, three years teaching, training. In fact, he started a pastor's training ministry in Ephesus. And men would go out from there and proclaim the gospel all through the Lycus Valley. Ephesus was a strong church. Following Paul, Timothy was there pastoring the church. And even after Timothy, uh, church history tells us the apostle John is pastoring involved in that church. And John even says in Revelation, or Jesus says uh, to John in Revelation chapter 2, that this church is known for understanding doctrine, understanding truth. And Paul is telling Timothy, those whom you're preaching to, they will be tempted to turn away from the truth. Those in his very own congregation. There will come a time when professing believers, those who are members of the church, who have sat under his teaching, perhaps even some who have come to Christ through Paul or been influenced by Paul when he was there. Those who have listened to Timothy perhaps for even years. Even they will turn away from the truth when something comes along that they want to hear. This is sobering, friends. This is sobering, brothers and sisters. Because he's speaking about a group of people just like us. We love the truth. We stand on the truth. We, we um, respect and, and, and desire right doctrine, right? Right? 
I'm still right about that, aren't I? Yes? Church at Ephesus, in the same place. And they had far better pastors involved in their ministry. And even with all of that, Paul says there's going to come a time they're going to turn away from the truth after something they want to hear. How is it that there are so many empty churches all across not only this land, but all over the world? You know, we went to Europe last year. We saw many churches that had become coffee shops and theaters and community centers and even mosques. Why is that? I'm sure many of them started well. How did they end there? Again, this is not a weak church that Paul is referring to here. So if the Ephesians were in danger of this, let us not think that we are not as well. Let us not think that we are not susceptible to the same danger. Again, certainly we see it all around us. Professing believers, professing churches that that are drifting towards teaching that they like, preaching that makes them feel good, stories that make them happy, messages that feed their desires, that justify, in some cases, sinful lifestyles. And again, the same thing can happen to us. You know, I mean, I I could give so many examples of those who had come, uh, Bible teachers, preachers, scholars who had come from a conservative understanding of the Bible, recognizing and affirming the Bible is inerrant, that it is the Word of God, that it is the truth. It was only just 10, 12 years ago that the president of the Evangelical Theology Society, Francis Beckwith, converted to Catholicism. While he was president of the Evangelical Theological Society, which its mission statement, its its uh, doctrinal statement is simply affirming the inerrancy of the Scripture. Michael Shermer, he's a leading atheist in our days, a founder of the Skeptic Society and the Skeptic Magazine. Did you know when he was in college, he was a leader in Campus Crusade, and he went out to many campuses preaching the gospel, evangelizing for several years. Now he's a leading atheist in the world. Bart Ehrman, he was... Uh, Got his PhD in New Testament texts. He did a wonderful book, a helpful book. It's in my library with Bruce Metzger on New Testament documents and how do we understand all the documents that we have and the copies and that whole thing. He wrote a wonderful book on that. Now he is a leading proponent against inerrancy and authority of that same New Testament that he affirmed and has influenced so many seminarians for the good. And even recently... Francis Chan has connected himself with those in the prosperity gospel movement. I don't know the whole issue there, but things like that 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 bother me, they scare me, they disturb me. I could go through many other situations, and if guys like these could be influenced, we're not immune, are we? Don't ever think that. By the grace of God, we have to trust in the Word of God, no matter what. How do we avoid it? How do we avoid the influence of postmodernists around us, the postmodern thinking? How do we keep from being drawn in? Well, Paul gives the answer plainly in 2 Timothy 4 2 when he says, Timothy, you must continue, present tense imperative here, you must continue to preach the word. Don't stop. And to that, James, I'm sure, would add to the listeners we need to be not just hearers of the word, but doers, respond to it. 
Jesus said, right, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Again, the answer is the truth. The answer is to hear the truth, to know the truth, to depend on the truth, to pursue the truth. Proverbs 23, 13 says, buy truth and don't sell it. And again, what is it that will move us to do that? What is it that will keep us from straying from the truth? What is it that will motivate us to buy truth and not sell it in this postmodern culture? How do we instruct and guide our children in this postmodern culture? Well, we find the answer to that in the verses right before Paul told Timothy to preach the word. So let's go back to 2 Timothy 3, verse 14. And here we will see three reminders about the Word of God, three three truths about the Word of God that will keep us in dependence on it. Three truths about the truth that will motivate us to be a Bible-centered church, to be a Bible-centered Christian. Yes, if you're wondering, that was just the introduction. But I think it's important to set the context for us so we understand importance of what Paul is saying here. Take a look with me now at verse 14. Just after warning Timothy that wicked false teachers would come in chapter 3, depraved individuals, verse 8, who oppose the truth, Paul then says this in verse 14. You, however, Timothy, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Again, we see here three three truths about the truth that will motivate us to be Bible-centered. And the first of these is this, that God speaks through the Word. We should be Bible-centered because God speaks through it. This is seen at the beginning of verse 16. Paul says, all Scripture is what? Those of you in New American Standards, all Scripture is inspired. Those of you with ESV, what does it say? All Scripture is breathed, breathed out. I like that translation better. Once in a while, the ESV gets a point. Okay, this is, this is one place where that's... But that word inspired, at least as translated by New American Standard, it comes from a compound word that Paul put together. It's found nowhere else in the New Testament. He combined the word for God, theos, with this word for the verb breathe, neo. So the, the word is theosneustos. And I only say that because when you see the literal translation is God breathed. So Paul makes up this word or, or combines this word in order to emphasize a point that this scripture, all scripture, is breathed out by God. It's not inspired, it's expired. It's breathed out. Just as our words, my words are being breathed out from my lungs in a similar fashion, the word of God was, was breathed out from his lungs, so to speak. And certainly, the Bible was written by men in their own time, in their own language, in a particular circumstance for a particular purpose, in their own background, with their own personality, their own experience, within their own culture. But the ultimate source of the words that landed on the page finds its source in the Holy Spirit of God. Second Peter 1, Peter tells us that, right? Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. When the authors of Scripture wrote, they were being moved by the Holy Spirit. 
David realized this in 2 Samuel 23, verse 1. Remember, David wrote all those psalms. How did he know? He knew they were actually expired. God breathed. Because he says this in 2 Samuel 23, 1. David, the son of Jesse, declares, the sweet psalmist of Israel says, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. Jesus affirmed such in Mark 12, 36. After he quotes from Psalm 110, he says this, David himself said, in the Holy Spirit. Or we see another example, an interesting one, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, where the, the author of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 95, verse 7. Uh, and, and in that quote, he says, in, he, in Hebrews 3, 7, just as the Holy Spirit says. And then he quotes from the psalm. But one chapter later, he quotes the same exact verse from the same psalm. But he says that time, saying through David. So there's that interchange. It was written by human authors. Holy Spirit was also author, capital A. And so because of the work of the Spirit in writing Scripture, the Bible is theonoustos. The Bible is God-breathed. God speaks through it. And I know this is not a new doctrine or truth for you, but we can't miss the significance of this. Every time we read our Bible, every time we hear it read, every time we are hearing from it being taught, it is God who is speaking. What other book can say that? Others claim it. But what other book can say it and it be true? As Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. There's that expired idea that he presents there. Notice Jesus said there, every word. Notice Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, 16, all Scripture. What does that mean? Every word in the Bible as it, as it was written was breathed out by God. Every single word. God himself is speaking. And Jesus took it even a step further when he said in Matthew 5, 18, that not until heaven and earth pass away, not one, the smallest letter or the stroke, part of a letter, shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus affirms not only is every phrase, every chapter, every book, the word of God. He says even every word, every letter, every part of a letter is God-breathed. And listen, if it is God-breathed, then it's without error because God is without error. In fact, Psalm 19.7 affirms this very clearly. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect and the judgments of the Lord are true. That's why Jesus could say without hesitation, your word is present state truth. But postmodernists don't like that assertion. Our culture doesn't like that assertion. In fact, emergent church leader Rob Bell said this of the Bible. In a book he wrote, said, what is the Bible? He said this, The Bible wasn't written by a third party somewhere in the sky who was passively and objectively telling you what the plan is. It was written by real people in real places at real times, doing their best to make sense of it all. Written only by men trying to make sense of life? Now, certainly the authors were trying to make sense of life at times in their struggles, but as I think about that statement, not written by a third party, what's he saying there in not so subtle terms? God didn't write this book. Human beings did, and they're just trying to figure life out. Is that what Paul said about it? 
Is that what Peter said about it? Is that what Jesus said about it? You know, frankly, I would go with those three over Mr. Bell. And I know I'm naming names this morning, but you need to be aware. You have to be aware. Because these are dangerous teachings. We don't have the gospel right yet. The Bible wasn't written by God. It's just a collection of human writings. These are by men in, in a, a very prominent church movement. Look, the Bible is not a book that can be subjected to the evaluation and judgment of human beings. We, we can't assert that there's no truth or the truth can't be known just because we say so or want it to be so or think it to be so or can come up with some logical in our own minds reasoning for that. We can't choose to ignore some parts of the Bible because we don't like it, because it, it doesn't mesh with our current modern thinking, because it makes us feel guilty, because it doesn't make sense at times. We can't make those decisions. This is not our word. This is his word. We can't do that. You know, in Daniel chapter 4, it says, no one can ward off God's hand or say to him, what have you done? He doesn't answer to us. God doesn't answer to us. It's not like he's going around, okay, I've written this here. Is that okay, you think? What, what about this passage? People might not like that. So don't, don't, don't mention that then. That's going to be a hard sell. There are parts in Scripture that are a hard sell. <laughs> There's some difficult stuff in here. Things we need to wrestle with. But we can't step back and, and say, well, we can't know the truth. Or, you know, things have changed in our culture today. Things are different than when they were written back then. Jesus affirmed this is God's Word. God speaks through it. And listen, if it was important enough for God to breathe it out... It is certainly important enough for us to breathe it in. It's our spiritual oxygen that gives spiritual life. You remember what Peter said to Jesus in John chapter 6 when all the disciples left and Jesus turned to the disciples or all the, you know, the followers left him and he turned to his 12 and he said, are you going to leave too? And what is it Peter says? Where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter could have put in brackets there, and we don't understand them all the time. He said that about Paul, didn't he, later? Second Peter chapter 3. You know, Paul says some stuff I don't get. But he called it Scripture. And then he said, those who are confused distort it. You know, Jesus has the words of eternal life. We should be motivated to be Bible-centered because God speaks through the Bible. Secondly, we should be motivated to be Bible-centered because God saves through the Bible. Again, it's not like any other book. He not only speaks through it, He saves through it. Notice back in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them, that from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able, and take note of what he says here, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. You know, from infancy, that word childhood there can refer to an infant. From when, when Timothy was just a little guy, his, his mother Eunice... And his grandmother, Lois, were investing in him. Parents, grandparents, you're listening? You're listening, right? From infancy. They were investing in him what? God's word. 
the sacred writings, Paul calls them here. And then later, Paul invested in Timothy, preaching the word to him, as we see in 2 Timothy. Paul tells Timothy here to remain in that because of what those sacred writings produced. What is it that he said? And again, he's talking only about the Old Testament here. Timothy was trained and instructed by his parent, his mom and his grandmother in Old Testament scripture. And as those very scriptures, because God is speaking through it, those very scriptures gave Timothy the wisdom, the understanding that led him to salvation. When Paul gave him the message of Christ. That is at the heart of the Gideon ministry. Just get the Bible out there in the heart language. Let the lion out of its cage. The Holy Spirit will do a work. Michael Near, your testimony is that basically, right? Reading a Gideon Bible and God speaking through that. That's my testimony. It wasn't a Gideon Bible, sorry, but it was a Bible that as I was reading and the Spirit was working on my own heart, how many of us could say that? It is ultimately the Scriptures. Isn't that what Romans ten seventeen? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. Again, the Word of God is powerful. It can affect the human heart. I, I love that. There's a great illustration in Acts chapter 8 with Philip. Remember when he was in Samaria, Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven who was the early, you know, early church deacon. He went out, he was an evangelist. And he's going along and he's directed by God to go down this certain road. And as he's traveling down that road, he meets this, this official from the uh, Ethiopian queen, Candace, I think her name was. And, and the guy, is, he's on this chariot and he's reading from Isaiah 53. And Philip hears him reading. And Philip hears him reading from this passage. And, and he comes up to him and he says, so do, do you understand what it's saying? And the Ethiopian says, well, I need someone to explain it to me. Wow, that's the easiest gospel transition ever. Oh, that we would have such an opportunity. Walk into Starbucks, right, and see somebody reading the Bible. Hey, do you understand what you're reading there? No, no, can you sit down and tell it to me, please? Oh, man, that's not fair. So here he does. Philip sits with him. And beginning from that text in Isaiah 53, he walks... This man through the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. And then explains to him, he says he preached Jesus to him from the scriptures. Just like Luke 24, when Jesus is walking on the Emmaus Road. And you know what? This guy gets saved. Bang, on the spot, in the chariot, sitting there as the word of God is explained to him. Holy Spirit opens his eyes and he's looking, hey, there's some water. I want to get baptized. I want to identify with Jesus Christ right now. What's stopping us from doing it? And it wasn't a little puddle. He, it was an immersed. He was immersed, okay? <laughs> Otherwise, that cup of water in the chariot, he could have just dumped that on him. But so he had to... Anyway, that's another discussion. But it's an amazing story. The Word of God alone opens this guy's heart. And again, many of us have that same testimony. Brothers and sisters, we, we need the Bible, <laughs> We need to be Bible-centered. We need to trust in it. We need to affirm it as a truth. We need to proclaim it as a truth because salvation is only found in the message of Scripture. The power of the Spirit to save through the Word of God. You know, in Luke 10, verse 25, when a lawyer came up to Jesus trying to, to put him to the test, he says, Teacher, Rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
And this is how Jesus responded. What is written in the law? How does it read to you? Again, even though this is a lawyer, right? These guys are supposed to know the law, the Torah, well. And so he flips it back on him. How did Jesus respond to this all-important question? What must I do to be saved? Inherit eternal life. And Jesus says this, Mr. Lawyer, what does the Bible say? He points him where? To the word. Jesus knew it is in the Bible we learn the truth, that they're perfect, holy, all-powerful creator, good and kind creator, created the universe, and he created us with but a word. It's in the Bible we learn of the truth that we have all rebelled against God, deserving the punishment of hell. It's in the Bible that we learn the truth that God sent his own son to become a man, to live a sinless life. It is in the Bible we learn the truth that Jesus died an unjust death on the cross so that he could be a payment for sin. It's in the Bible that we learn that Jesus rose from the dead to show that the Father accepted his sacrifice, that he could be and is a payment for sin. It's in the Bible we learn that that payment is given to any who put their trust in him alone and turn from their sin, desire to turn from it and follow Jesus Christ. It's in the Bible that we learn the truth. If we confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. That's in the Bible that we learn that. It's in the Bible that the Holy Spirit speaks through that. It's from the Bible that we can come to know the living God. Whoever believes in the Son will not perish, but have eternal life. Wow. That is the truth. That is the truth. The only way we can be saved is through Christ. The only way we can be forgiven is through Christ. The only way we can be right with God. The only way we can have eternal life. Jesus himself said it, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Friend, I want to ask you to ask yourself, do you believe that? We have one affirmation. It's okay. Keep them in here. Have you surrendered your life to Christ? Really? Do you trust Him alone for salvation? Have you expressed a desire to turn from your sin and follow Jesus, to give up everything for Him? Again, thank you for that affirmation. So, brothers and sisters, we, we're motivated to, to be Bible-centered. One is we understand and remind ourselves that God speaks through it, and secondly, that He saves through it. Thirdly, there's a third and last point here from this passage. A third motivation to be Bible-centered is that He sanctifies through it. He sanctifies through it. Take a look again at 2 Timothy 3.16. Paul says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Paul says here, the Bible is, is breathed out. It's God breathed and it is profitable. That means useful, beneficial, helpful to our advantage, for our good. And he, he says it's profitable because it brings instruction. The Bible instructs us. It brings conviction. It convicts us. It it shows us also how to be restored. And it disciplines us to a righteous life. And notice the beginning of verse 17. And here's the key. The first words there are, so that. This is a purpose statement. This tells us why the Bible is profitable for us. It's profitable for us because of what it produces in us. 
God-breathed truth is for our benefit. It makes us, because it makes us adequate, complete, perfect, mature is the idea. Able to meet any demand that comes our way. It equips us for, notice the end of verse 17, every good work. That's an encompassing statement, isn't it? John Piper said this, every good thing that God expects us to do, the scriptures equip us to do. That's an encouraging and true statement. Every good thing God expects us to do, Scripture equips us to do. Augustine said this. My brain stopped. I wrote it in the front of my Bible for just such an occasion. I thought I did. Maybe I forgot that too. Ah, here it is. Here it is. It's no fun getting older. Augustine said this, command me to obey your will and give me the will to obey your command. And he does that. He does that. In fact, Romans 15 verse 4 says, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of scriptures we might have hope. This is a critical point for us to understand and embrace and recognize, particularly in the culture we live in today, that if if you're struggling, listen, if you're struggling with a with conflict or, or an addiction or with lust or you lost a job or going through suffering or persecution or, or struggles in a relationship or you're having doubts or you have a wayward child or your health is poor or you're going through struggles financially or you're suffering from rejection, the loss of a loved one, a difficult boss, poor living conditions, whatever it is you're struggling with, Paul is saying here the Bible is able to what? Give you everything you need. Grant you everything you need for for every good work. Everything that you need to live for God. Everything that you need to be satisfied in God. Everything that you need to have joy in God, in Christ. Not necessarily every problem getting fixed, but how to not just cope with that problem, but thrive in it, to grow in it. The Scripture can do that. It's the Spirit of God working through the Word of God. So that we would be like Christ. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, right? Second Peter 1.3 says, His divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His glory and excellence. Again, all we need to grow and thrive as a Christian is through the true knowledge of Him. And we find that in His Word. So God speaks through it. God saves through it. God sanctifies through it. Beloved, we live in a world that's questioning whether truth even exists. In a time when many professing believers question whether one can even know the truth. And it's in that kind of world we must stand on the conviction that there is truth. The truth. And it's found in the Word of God. Oh, Christian, oh, fellow brothers and sisters of Calvary Bible Church, let us be Bible-centered. Like Peter said, where else will we go? The Bible's an incredible gift from a loving creator who has not remained silent. I've told you about that prayer from, um, I think it was an Assyrian. They found it in um, Nineveh. They excavated it. 
It was a prayer, and the prayer was something like, to the God I know or do not know. And it's this whole prayer. It's written in cuneiform, ancient Babylonian script. And in the prayer, it's this guy that's crying out to the gods. And it's, it's a heartbreaking prayer. See, to the God that I know or don't know. To the, I know I've sinned against you, but I don't know who you are. And, to, and he just goes through this whole, he's living a life that he's in pain and suffering. He's feeling guilt. Because he knows there's right and wrong, and he's no, he knows he's violated that. But he doesn't know where to go. Because those gods, the Babylonian gods, never spoke to him. Because they're not real. But God has spoken. He says that over and over to the people of Israel. The God who has spoken to you. That was a big deal. His deities didn't do that in the ancient Near East. Again, because they weren't real. But God has spoken. And when he gave the Ten Commandments, he literally spoke them to the people. So they all heard. God has not remained silent. He's told us his story. The story of redeeming love for a wicked creation. The Bible's not the story of man. It's the story of the man. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I'd like to close with these words from Pastor John Piper. He said this in one of his sermons. I love the Bible the way I love my eyes. Not because my eyes are lovely, but because without them I cannot see what is lovely. Without the Bible, I could not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Without the Bible, I could not know the unsearchable riches of Christ. Without the Bible, I would not know that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. I love the Bible because it gives the wisdom that leads to salvation and shows me that this salvation is nothing less than seeing and savoring the glory of Christ forever. And then the Bible provides me inexhaustible ways of seeing and knowing and enjoying Christ. Brothers and sisters, I, I, I love my eyes because they allow me to see what is beautiful in this world. But I love the Bible because it allows me to see the one who is beautiful, who made this world. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, your word is a precious gift. A precious gift that I know I have and I can guess that many of us have taken for granted at times. And Lord, we know the, the book itself, the, the print and the ink is not, Lord, in some spiritual mystical way, what does the work? It is the truth that is expressed in those words and it is the power of your spirit working through that truth that affects change. We don't worship a, a book. We don't worship paper and ink. We worship the God who has spoken through that paper and ink. So we treasure your word because it is your word. It is you who has spoken through it and you who has saved through it and you continue to save and sanctify through it. We're thankful for your Son who is called the Word. Because in through Him we have seen you. In these last days you have spoken to us through Him. For that we are grateful. We're thankful for the work that He has done to make a way that we could know you. And to make a way that we could know your truth as your Spirit dwells in us. And pray that you would give us conviction. The Word is the truth. Lord, help us in 
this culture which continues to, to deny the truth or continues to undermine it, even in the church, the impact that that has had and so many things now that, that are accepted and even embraced and affirmed and encouraged that, that are opposed to your word. Oh, Lord, give us wisdom in this age. Oh, Lord, protect our children and our grandchildren. Oh, God, make us, especially the parents and grandparents here, and all of us, Lord, invest in these young people. Invest the truth in them. Live the truth out so that they would not be left unprotected or unaware. Oh, God, may every father in this room take upon himself the mantle that you have given to raise his sons and daughters in the truth. And Lord, again, that all of us in the church would, would support that and be a part of that, that, that these young people, these little ones, are our first mission field here. So, oh God, I pray that you would, Lord, strengthen us for this in a more and more difficult culture that we live in. And we thank you that we are not alone. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your son. We pray in his name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.